You can find the scripture passage in your bulletin. And we will read this out loud together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Treasure is there your heart will be also. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together while we remain standing. Lord, this is your word. These are your words. Oh God, may we hear them with that faith today. May we hear this, Lord, as the direct communication of our creator and our king. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond today with faith that obeys. Take care of us, Lord, in these next minutes of listening. I pray we would listen actively, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand and to believe and to feel the glory that is here. And transform us by this, O oh Lord, I ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to, for just a moment, picture the most godly person that you can imagine. The most morally upright, squeaky clean, God-fearing person that ever walked the earth. Maybe it's a real person that's in your mind. Maybe you know someone like that. Or maybe you're just sort of imagining a, a, a caricature of what you might think that kind of a person would be like. So I'm going to ask you some questions about that person that you are holding in your consciousness right now. What's the balance on their credit card? How much money do they have in savings? Do they even have savings? How much money do they live off of each month? How new is their car? How big is their home? How nice are their clothes? What kind of phone is in their pocket? And how new is it? Is it a flip phone or is it a smartphone? There's at least two kinds of answers that Christians tend to come up with when it comes to these questions. On the one hand, some might picture this unrealistically godly person as someone who doesn't have a lot of money. 
if they haven't taken a vow of poverty, they're pretty close to it. This very godly person obviously doesn't have a credit card. They wear clothing from the 1940s that has miraculously not worn out yet, and ravens bring them food to eat every morning. Now, on the other hand, some might imagine this stand-up person, this very godly person, as obviously being well-off, prosperous, rich, maybe even really wealthy. Because wealth and prosperity are the sign of God's blessing on our lives, aren't they? Now, here's what's interesting, and here's why there's so often so much confusion on this topic, is that both of these sets of answers, that Christians should generally be poor or that Christians should generally be rich, both of these sets of answers can point to verses in the scripture which seem to support their position. There are verses in the Bible that seem to suggest Christians should reject anything material. I mean, didn't when Jesus sent out his disciples, didn't he tell them, don't even bring money with you. Don't even bring a staff. Just go. I'll take care of you. And on the other hand, there's other scriptures which seem to suggest that the opposite's true. That if we obey God, that he's going to bless us materially. That we will prosper. So what do you think is the right answer? How do you make sense of what appears to be some mixed messages here? And more importantly, most importantly, perhaps, how do you apply this to yourself? What is your financial situation and how do you feel your financial situation reflects your godliness? I hope it's not a surprise to you by now this morning that we're talking about money and possessions this morning. And what we're going to try and do this morning is make sense of these apparently conflicting messages that we hear in the Bible. And we're going to see that confusion on this topic, confusion on money and possessions and whether Christians should have a lot or not a lot comes, the confusion comes when we don't understand or ignore the way that the Bible fits together as one story. But when we understand how the Bible fits together as one story, then we're going to be able to clearly see where we are in the story, how the, what the story means for our lives today, and what God expects of us in terms of our money and possessions. So that's what we're doing right now at this, in this part of, of our series that, is that we're exploring. How does the big picture of the story impact our lives today? And that's all that we're doing today, applying it to money and possessions. So let's begin by going back back in the story, not all the way to the beginning, like we did last week. We're going to go back to God's covenant with Israel. So you'll remember how the, the big storyline of the Bible, like we explored back in the fall, the big storyline of the Bible is built on the framework of these covenants that God makes with his people. And so after delivering his people from Egypt, God entered into a covenant with them. God made a covenant with Israel. And that covenant had expectations, and then that covenant had blessings and curses. And as part of the blessings of that covenant, God promises people that if they obeyed him, he would prosper them materially. That was right there in the covenant itself. So I've mentioned before that Deuteronomy chapter 28 is, is such an important 
chapter in the Bible and really understanding how this covenant works and how it works itself out in the Old Testament. So when we read Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is where God tells them the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience within that covenant, within Deuteronomy 28, we read statements like this. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. The Lord will command his blessing on you in your barns, or we could say in your storehouses, and in all that you undertake. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Those are just some selections from Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 4 and 8 and 11 and 12. Those were the terms of the covenant. That was that covenant God made with Israel contained this in it, that if they obeyed God, he would bless them with material blessing, with wealth, prosperity, and the flip side was also true. The rest of Deuteronomy 28 goes on to show that, that if it, it, within that covenant, if they disobeyed God, if they didn't obey him, then they would experience financial ruin or material ruin. There would be drought and they would not be fruitful and their barns would be empty and so on. And what we need to understand is that the entire, essentially the rest of the Old Testament takes place within this covenantal framework. The, 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 the framework of God's covenant with Israel through Moses. And we have to understand that these covenant blessings were there if we're going to understand the rest of the Old Testament properly. So for example, here, here's, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns or storehouses will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Sounds like a great verse, doesn't it? Honor God with your first fruits, right? Tithe and you're going to be blessed. You're going to be prosperous. What is this verse saying? You know what this verse is, is saying? It's basically just repeating Deuteronomy chapter 28, right? In the law of Moses, God had commanded his people to honor him with the first fruits of their crops and whatever they would produce. Deuteronomy 26, verse 6. So when, when Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, that's not a new idea. That was one of the laws God had commanded them to do in the law of Moses. And Deuteronomy 28 tells us if you obey the law, God's going to bless them, He's going to make their barns be full. And so this verse in Proverbs, this passage in Proverbs is simply repeating that. If we obey God, he will bless us materially. So Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 is not telling us anything new. It's simply celebrating that God is going to keep his covenant promises to his covenant people. We have to remember the context of the covenant. The same thing's true in Psalm 37. Where, where David famously wrote, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. 
I grew up in a really poor family. We quoted that verse to each other a lot. But this verse takes place in the, in the context of God's covenant with Israel through Moses. And in that covenant, of course the righteous man's children aren't going to beg for bread because within that covenant, righteous men were rich. That's what God promised. So David here, again, once again, he's not saying anything new. He's simply celebrating that God keeps his covenant promises. One more example. It's another well-known passage from the Old Testament about money. It's from Malachi chapter 3. So it's that passage where God accuses the people of robbing him because they weren't tithing. And in that passage, God challenges the people to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And then he promises that if they do that, he will open the windows of heaven and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi chapter 3. By now you should see where this is going. Tithing, bringing the tithe into the storehouse, was one of the laws in the law of Moses that they were given to obey. And so once again, Malachi chapter 3 is just repeating the covenant promises of Deuteronomy chapter 28. If they obey the law, God will prosper them financially. There's a couple of other, well, a few other well-known Old Testament passages I wanted to write about here, like the prayer of Jabez, for example, or some other ones. I'm going to put them on the blog this week. But these all, with very, very consistently, they all paint this picture that within that covenant, God's covenant with Israel, to be godly was to be wealthy. Because that was the specific promises of that covenant. So as we try and understand what this means for us today, it's very important for us to recognize that we do not live under the terms and conditions of that covenant anymore. We're not under the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. You and I today live under the new covenant in Christ. And that covenant has replaced the old covenant, right? Hebrews 8.13 says about God, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. It says it right there. The covenant that God made with Moses is obsolete. And I think we, we shouldn't be surprised by that, right? How many of you have sacrificed an animal in the past week? Right? We, we don't go to the temple and offer animal sacrifices. We know that something big changed when Jesus came. We know that we're under the new covenant, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ who died for our sins and rose again as the first fruits of the new creation. Right? We, we know that this has happened. And yet, so many Christians seem to remember that in those terms. They remember we don't have to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. But so many Christians tend to forget about this. They forget that we're under a different covenant when they read about the promises of prosperity. So many Christians read Deuteronomy 28 and just say, oh, so I, I, just, I looked at a book just a couple weeks ago called The Storehouse Principle. 
And it quoted Deuteronomy 28, verse 8. I'll bless your storehouses. And they said, well, if that's going to happen, I better have storehouses. And it was all a book about how Christians needed to open up savings accounts so that God could fill them up with prosperity. You know what that is? That's misunderstanding the storyline of the Bible. It's forgetting where we are in the story. It's, it's reading passages from that covenant and forgetting that we're not under that covenant anymore. And by the way, this is, this is just where the, what I just talked about is a part of the prosperity gospel. And this is just where the prosperity gospel comes from. If you're unfamiliar with the prosperity gospel, you've, you probably, you've probably encountered it, heard about those rich televangelists with private jets who tell you that God wants you to have the same. You know what the prosperity gospel is? It's simply misunderstanding these passages from the Old Testament and misunderstanding that we're not in that covenant anymore. That being said, though, the prosperity gospel is dangerous stuff. It's, it's all over the place. You might be surprised even at some of the popular teachers that, that you might even enjoy on the TV or internet who, who believe this, who believe that if you obey God the right way or if you have just enough faith in him or if you use your words in just the right way, right? There's that whole word of faith idea. If you do that, then God wants you to be rich and prosperous. This teaching's all over the place and it shows up in sneaky ways. It's not just the rich, super mega rich guys with private jets. It shows up even in innocent Christian movies like Facing the Giants. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. I'm guessing many of us here in this room have seen the movie Facing the Giants. It's about a guy who's in a tough spot in life. Everything's going bad for him. And so he finally surrenders everything to God. And guess what happens next? Everything starts going good for him. His football team, which had been losing, starts to win. His job situation, his financial situation, which had been going poorly, starts to go better. Him and his wife had been struggling with infertility. They're finally able to conceive. And then someone comes and gives him a brand new truck. Just because. That would be fine and good and biblical if we still lived under the old covenant. But we don't. We live in the new covenant. And in this new covenant, our relationship with money and possessions is not the same as it was back then. And nowhere is this more clear than when we hear the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 that we read together already. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I want you just to imagine how these words would have landed on the ears of the people who were hearing Jesus say this for the first time, right? We know from the context, it was a mixed group. There were Gentiles in there, but in this group that was hearing the Sermon on the Mount, many of them were Jews. Many of them would have been very familiar with the scriptures. Storing up treasures on earth, that's a good thing to do. That's a sign of God's favor, right? Didn't God promise that if I obey him, I'm going to be able to store up treasures on earth? I'm going to have full barns, full storehouses? I mean, come on. This is, this is the, the, the good, blessed life here. 
And now Jesus comes in a sermon, which by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is just dripping with new covenant truth. Jesus comes and says, don't do that anymore. Stop storing up treasures on earth is a way that this could be taken. Don't stockpile your possessions. Don't lay up treasure. Something really big has changed. Something really big has changed between Deuteronomy 28 verse 8 and Matthew 6:19. That something is the arrival of Jesus who's bringing the new covenant. That something is the kingdom of God. Do you remember Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of God, we've talked about that back in the fallout. The kingdom of God has broken in to this present age, this present age that we live in. It's on its way out. The kingdom of God is already here. And you and I are living in this time right now of already but not yet, right? We're sort of halfway in this present age and we're halfway already in the kingdom of God. And in this time, in our spot in the story, Jesus calls his people to have their priorities start to shift away from this present age and towards the eternal age that's ahead of us, which we're already a part of. Our priorities need to shift away from storing up treasures on earth. And our priorities need to move towards storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus reminds us here in in this present age, which is subjected to the curse, right? We bring in all these elements of the big story. Our stuff here is so temporary and vulnerable to being eaten and destroyed and stolen. Don't store up treasures on earth. In this present age where moth, rust, destroy, thieves break in and steal. I had my bike stolen once about a couple years ago. There's a carbon copy of the bike that I have now. And uh, I was pretty upset about it. And I remember praying a a whiny little prayer along the lines of, you know, come on, God, I'm serving you. And I don't have lots of money. And why'd you let this happen? And then I remembered these verses. Jesus never promised to protect my stuff. Jesus warned me right here that my stuff is a part of this old creation. It's affected by the curse. It's vulnerable to rust and thieves. So according to Jesus, the solution to not having your stuff stolen is to keep your stuff in a place where it can't be stolen, namely heaven. Instead of laying up treasures on earth, he tells us to lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So please hear, Jesus is not telling us don't lay up treasures for yourself. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is don't lay up treasures for yourself here in this creation, in this age, in this earth. You're a part of the kingdom of God. You're a part of the new creation. Start laying up treasures in heaven where there's no curse, where your treasures are going to last into eternity. It's almost the idea here is like you're moving from one home to the next. Why would you renovate your old house or start putting stuff in your old house. If you're going to be moving out in a little bit and it's going to get torn down, start putting stuff into your new house. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't store up treasures on this earth, store up treasures in heaven. So that's the big picture. But we're going to ask a series of questions here that will help us really dig in and see 
a little bit more specifically what this passage is teaching us. So here's the first question. What does Jesus mean when he says treasures on earth? Don't store up treasures on earth, right? One of the first things, I don't know about you, but I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? Is this talking about anything that's valuable whatsoever? Does this mean, for example, we shouldn't have a savings account? Does it mean that we should take a vow of poverty? What does this mean? What are treasures on earth? So we're going to answer that question or try for the next few minutes. Those questions I just asked, does this mean anything of value? Does this mean we shouldn't have a savings account? I know how easy it is for us just to say, of course not. But, but we got to check ourselves. What if? What if that is what Jesus was saying? Would you obey him? The way we need to answer these questions is not just to say, of course not, but we need to look at scripture. So for example, we notice that, that Jesus didn't ask his disciples to take a permanent vow of poverty, right? So there was that one journey he sent them out on where he said, don't take anything with you. <clears throat> but later on, as he was preparing to send them out for that more permanent journey of the Great Commission, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Right? So Jesus told his, his disciples as they were heading out on the Great Commission to take some supplies along like money and a backpack and apparently a weapon for self-defense. That was okay. We also know, for example, as we look at the New Testament, that Christians often gathered in, in each other's homes for fellowship and hospitality. So home ownership wasn't out of the question. That wasn't, wasn't something that they were, the early Christians were expected to reject. This is actually the reason, by the way, Amy and I, the reason that we bought the house that we did when we moved to town here, not only was it the cheapest thing on the market that fit our family, but it was a home that we could use as a ministry center, a place that we could have people in all the time, that we could use for hospitality and ministry. And getting to do that has been, has been a real dream come true for us. So that kind of thing is in the New Testament is not out of the question. We know also that the Apostle Paul, many times he experienced hunger and need, but there's other times where Paul experienced plenty. We read in Philippians 4.12 that, that he was okay with that. We also know that Paul had some possessions that were valuable to him. 2 Timothy 4.13, he asked Timothy to bring him his cloak and some books and some parchment. So Paul had some possessions that he owned that were valuable to him. And then there's one, one other example. There, there's Paul's command to the Thessalonians where he told them all that they should each earn their own living and be dependent on no one. And in today's economy, where we've got vehicles and appliances that break down, and especially today where, where many of us are going to live for several years after we've stopped being able to earn an income, which is a, a relatively new thing in the history of the world, Obeying the command to be dependent on no one is very difficult without some measure of savings. That, that, that's simply an economic reality today. So, so when Jesus says treasures on earth, we know it doesn't refer to the tools that we need to live and fulfill our mission. It, 
It doesn't mean anything of material value. And, and I, I hesitate to say that it would refer to something like a moderate amount of savings that we have in place to cover our necessities. But I do think, I, like, I don't think we really have to ask too, too deeply here, because we kind of get that word treasure, right? Treasure is things of value that we don't actually need to live and fulfill our mission. It's our treasure. It's our luxury items, the things that we keep and collect and stockpile for ourselves that, that go way beyond what we actually need. It's like the rich man that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12. His land produced plentifully and he thought to himself, I'm quoting here, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Many people today would call that good financial planning. Eh, Freedom 55, hey, sounds like he's right on track. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus said then, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I want to be careful that we don't define treasures on earth too broadly, but I want to be even more careful that we don't define treasures on earth too narrowly, that we let ourselves off the hook if there's a hook that we should be on. So if that's what treasures on earth are, then the next important question we got to ask, what are treasures in heaven? And how do we store them up? How do I move my assets to a heavenly vault? If we were to read the Gospel of Matthew all the way through, we'd see that treasures in heaven is speaking about the things. Let me start over again. Treasures in heaven point to the reward that we're going to receive from God in heaven in the age to come. It's talking about our eternal reward. So we talked about this idea last week in the context of good works. God has promised to reward us for the things that we do by faith in him here in this age. God's promised to reward us for our good works. So in Matthew's gospel alone, we read that doing righteous deeds, suffering for Christ's sake, forgiving one another, doing good works for one another, those are all actions that God will reward in eternity. And so when Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heaven, what he's saying is, do the kinds of things that will result in heavenly reward. Do the kinds of things that God will reward you for. And he doesn't just say we're allowed to do that. Just think about that. Like, does the idea of doing stuff so that God will reward you, does that seem a little bit not, you're not quite sure if that's safe? Look, Jesus here doesn't just say you can do that. He says you should do that. You are commanded to seek God's eternal reward. Store up treasures in heaven. This should be a 
priority for us. So, another question. Why not both? Why can't I lay up treasures on earth and in heaven? Why can't I live the good life here and get eternal life thrown in as a bonus? Why can't I do both? Why do I have to pick? And the answer is that it's impossible to do both. It is impossible to seek earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 9, says, Those who desire to be rich, we could say those who desire to store up treasures on earth, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, Paul writing to Timothy now, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Do you see that? That wanting to be rich and pursuing eternal life and eternal reward are in two completely opposite directions. You can't chase both at the same time. We need to make a choice. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6, just a few verses down in Matthew 6, 24? No one, he said, can serve two masters. For he will either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I've known some people who have tried to prove Jesus wrong on this file. It doesn't work out. He knew what he was talking about. It is impossible to pursue earthly riches as a goal and an end and to pursue eternal riches. We have to make a choice. And just practically, don't you see how this works? Right? If you're going to be committed to storing up treasures in heaven, it means you're going to be committed to using your money and your time to do the kinds of things that Jesus is going to reward you for. You're going to be using your money to support your church and to support missionaries and ministries. And you're going to be using your time not to work more and more and more so you can earn more and more and more, but you're going to be using your time to show care and love for others, to do good works, And if we're committed to those things, we're just not going to have the time or the money left over to be stockpiling our own cash of goods. We have to choose. Now, I think we should admit this is a, a really difficult part of Scripture for us here in North America to really understand. It's going to talk very directly to us here. Most of us in this room today probably don't think that we are wealthy, right? Wealthy is always the guy who has more than us. But by global standards, virtually every person in this room today is wealthy. Just consider this statistic, just one. The poverty line in the United States is 11,000 US dollars a year. In Canada, like that works out to about 15,000 Canadian dollars. Someone living off that poverty line of 15,000 Canadian dollars is more wealthy 
than 85% of the world's population. The majority of the world lives off 500 US dollars or less a year. Most of us here are staggeringly rich. So it's important that we be reminded this morning. We don't actually need a lot to live on. Right? First Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So I just want to suggest to you a practice that I've tried to do and continue to try to do to help myself fight back against the tidal pull of materialism in this North American culture that we live in. I interrogate my money and my possessions. Here's what I mean. Had, had a chance to do this when we moved here from Regina. As every item went in a box, I had the chance to just ask, what are you here for? Are you a tool in my life that I'm using to do my work for the kingdom? Are you here to help me more effectively fulfill my mission of good works? Or are you just treasure that I'm stockpiling for my own luxury? And because I asked that question of all my possessions once, I'm good, right? Not so much, because we live in North America here. We get temptation of an of a insidious nature every single time a flyer shows up in our mailbox. And I mean that, by the way. Satanic temptation to lure us away from the Lord every time we see the words door crasher sales. And I'm not saying going to a door crasher sale is sinful, but I hope you know what I'm saying. The pull of greed and materialism is so strong here. And so we need to keep asking these questions about our stuff, about our purchases, about how much money we have. Do I really need this? How much of this do I really need? What am I keeping this for? Is this a tool for mission that I'm on in my life? Or is this just treasure on earth? And so it's in this context I want us to hear these words from 1 Timothy 6 that, that we read together just a few minutes ago where Paul's talking to those who are rich in this present age, which includes most of us. We know being desiring to be rich is a deadly mistake, but what about those who just are rich? It wasn't, it wasn't their goal. It wasn't their desire. It wasn't what they're shooting for, but they just are. And so he says to them, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, it's proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. <laughs> riches are so uncertain. Haven't the markets this year shown us that? But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So here's what the rich in this present age are to do. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Do you hear how Paul just quoted Jesus? Thus storing up treasure for themselves. The rich in this present age, he commands to store up treasures for themselves in heaven by using their riches, their money, their possessions to do good works, to be generous, to share. So, 
If we are rich, we don't hang on to it. We use it for the kingdom. Just a couple more thoughts as we wrap up. I want to remind us that as, 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 as you decide to do that, as you decide to take your treasure, if, if you have it, and if you decide to let go of some of it, some possession, some amount of money, and to give it away to someone else who needs it, or to give it here to the church, or to give it to a missionary or to a ministry, as you do that, you're not actually making a sacrifice. All you're doing is moving your treasure from a less vulnerable place, sorry, from a more vulnerable place to a less vulnerable place. All you're doing is moving your treasure from earth to heaven. It's not actually losing anything. You're gaining something. We have everything to gain here by getting rid of earthly treasure and investing it in the kingdom. That is win-win. But that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? We have to believe that God is going to do that. We have to believe that as we hand the check over or do whatever it is with our possessions or money that we're doing to invest it in the kingdom, we have to believe God sees and God is going to reward me for this. And that's the question, isn't it? Do we really believe that he's going to do that? Do you really believe that your real life is in heaven and that God is going to reward you in heaven, in the new creation, for what you do with your money and possessions here on earth? It's hard to believe, isn't it? We just talked about our media-saturated world, all the flyers and advertisements. It's so hard to have our, our heart be in the right place. So this is one of our last questions this morning. How do we put our hearts in the right place? How do we get our hearts to be in heaven? In other words, like we put our hearts there so that our treasure will start to go there. How do we do that? There's something majorly wrong with the question that I just asked question that I just asked assumes that if we can get our hearts in the right place, then our treasure will follow. But that's not how it works. According to Jesus, our treasure does not follow our heart. What does Jesus tell us? Our heart will follow our treasure. Verse 21 of Matthew 6 where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't try and flip that around. Don't wait for your heart to feel like it's wrapped up in the things of heaven before you obey Jesus. Because that will never happen. Just start doing what King Jesus told you to do. Put your treasure in the right place and your heart will follow. If you have treasure laid up here on earth, you're never going to feel ready to give it away because Jesus said, your treasure's there, that's where your heart is. 
It's a big magnet sucking your heart down here to earth, even right at this moment. And the only solution is to not wait to feel it, but to just obey, to just do what Jesus said. Put it in heaven. Invest whatever that is, whatever that treasure is that's pulling your heart away. Invest it in things that matter for eternity. And then your heart will follow. You want to grow in your love for the Lord? You want to have your heart be more wrapped up in in him? You could read your Bible more or pray more, which is good. Or you could start putting your treasure there and your heart will follow. That sounds radical, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus said. And I'm not in the mood to argue with him. So final question this morning. What does it look like for you to obey Jesus on this file? Are you already doing that? Are you already obeying Jesus on this? Are you already saying no to storing up treasures on earth and saying yes to storing up treasures on heaven? Then please be encouraged. Praise God for that. You will be rewarded. Your investment in eternity, the generosity that you're expressing, God is going to reward you for that. Be encouraged. But if there's a chance that these scriptures have challenged you this morning and you realize you need to make some changes, then I think you need to, Think you know what you need to do. Obey Jesus. It's not like you have a choice. He's your king, isn't he? Jesus, would you help us to receive your word with faith this morning and to obey it? Knowing that as we do so, we are investing in our own joy. Help us to believe and help us to obey.